0: It's 11.30 p.m. on January the 22nd, 1957. In Montgomery, Alabama, the biting wind howls through the black night air, lulling its residents into a deep slumber. However, not everyone is peacefully sleeping tonight. Willie Edwards, a 24-year-old black man, has picked up an extra shift as a driver for the Wind dixie grocery store. He's only been working at the company for two months and is keen to make more money. As he drives along the dark, quiet streets of Montgomery, the bright lights of an a A&H convenience store in Lower Wetumpka Road catch his eye. Exhausted from driving through the night, Willie pulls into the parking lot to relax. With a soft drink in one hand and his driver's logbook open on his lap, Willie Edwards switches on the interior light in his van and begins to read. But at 11.50 p.m., his peaceful break is suddenly interrupted by a heavy thud on his door. Through his window, he can just about make out three white men hovering feet away from him. They're pointing guns at him and ordering him to get out of his vehicle. But before Willie can respond, the driver's door is violently wrenched open and he's forced out at gunpoint, spilling his drink and dropping his book in the scuffle. The men are strong, and Willie is outnumbered as he's directed towards an idling car where a fourth man awaits. In the sweaty darkness of the vehicle, Willie struggles to orient himself or make any sense of what's happening. As he bumps along Montgomery's unlit roads, the men accuse him of offending a white woman. They solemnly swear that tonight, they're going to make him pay for what he did. Willie's pleas of innocence only anger the men further, They slap his face and threaten to castrate him on the spot. Eventually, minutes after midnight, the car screeches to a halt. The four men pile out and drag Willie towards the Tyler Goodwin Bridge. 50 feet beneath them, the Alabama River flows ferociously, its icy waters pummeling through the banks. Echoes of its deafening torrent rebound off the bridge. Holding a gun to his head, one of the men barks at Willie to either run or jump. If he runs, then the four men with their guns and car will surely catch him. They'll possibly even shoot him. However, if he jumps, he'll most certainly plummet straight to his death. Behind him, the assailants are running out of patience. The night's getting colder and the icy rush of the river adds a sinister sense of urgency. A deep cry breaks the air. Hit the water, one of them yells. As Willie Edwards falls, he lets out a long, terrified scream. It momentarily drowns out the roar of the river and pierces the ears of his captors. The men on the bridge watch as he falls to his death. The murder of Willie Edwards is another cruel victory for the Montgomery Ku Klux Klan. Yet again, they've destroyed the life of a black man in order to exercise their reign of terror. But who were the four men on the bridge with Willie that night? Three decades will go by until an ex-Klansman finally reveals the truth in a chilling deathbed confession. At the moment of death, people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secret off their chest. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Willie Edwards, a Black man who was forced to jump to his death. It's about the racist brutality that consumed Alabama throughout the 1950s a state infiltrated by the powerful Ku Klux Klan and the reluctance of the police to help stop them. It's about four Klansmen who continually escaped justice, the brave work of a determined lawyer and a grieving family, and the deathbed confession from an ex-Klansman whose dying words finally shone light onto the tragic case of Willie Edwards. I'm Estefania Hakeman And this is Deathbed Confessions. That's Science vs. New season out on Spotify soon. During the 1950s, Alabama is a hotspot for civil rights activism. In 1954, schools in the southern state are legally required to integrate black and white students following the watershed Supreme Court case, Brown versus the Board of Education. Meanwhile, the state's capital, Montgomery, is a regular feature in national headline news. The actions of Rosa Parks, as well as 1955's bus boycotts, draw in significant attention. However, while the topic of equality rushes through the state, a dark, disturbing opposition begins to fester. The Ku Klux Klan. Angered by the progress the civil rights movement is making, Klan membership explodes and white supremacists viciously torment Alabama's black residents. The home of Martin Luther King is vandalized while his wife and newborn daughter rest inside. Reverend Shuttlesworth, a black activist, suffers four separate murder attempts by Klan members and bombings on black buses repeatedly injure innocent passengers. Due to the widespread fear and terror of the Klan, the group rarely receives any punishment. And so the state descends into a racist, violent clash of oppositions as the Klan is allowed to run rampant, doing everything in their power to thwart the civil rights movement effort. When Willie Edwards is abducted and told to jump to his death in January of 1957, the four Klansmen presume his story will simply die with him. But they're mistaken. From the moment Willie's family hears about his worrying disappearance, they vow to discover what happened. And in the decades that follow, they'll fight to bring justice to his name. It's January 23rd, 1957. In a small house in Hope Hull, Montgomery, 23-year-old Sarah Jean Edwards wakes to the pale light of dawn shining through her bedroom windows. She rolls over in bed, expecting to feel her husband's warm embrace, but instead, she finds his side cold and empty. Her high school sweetheart and father of her two young daughters, Willie Edwards, is not laying next to her. Sarah considers his unexpected absence for a few moments. She remembers that Willie took an extra shift last night for Winn Dixie and told her he'd be driving a new route through Sylacauga, a town approximately 60 miles from their home. But he was due to have finished hours ago and should have returned home by now. Sarah heaves herself out of bed, struggling against the discomfort of her pregnant body. She's expecting her and Willie's third child in just a few months. After kissing her two daughters a quick goodbye, Sarah hurriedly shuffles the few blocks of their rural community to the home of her father-in-law, William Edwards Sr. When she explains the situation, Edwards Sr. agrees that there's reason for concern. Willie is a reliable husband and father, who provides well for the family and dotes on his beloved wife. It's completely out of character for him to disappear like this without a trace. Of course, Sarah and Edward Sr. are all too aware of the sinister dangers that lie in wait for Montgomery's black men and women. They've heard stories and even witnessed cruel attacks by the Ku Klux Klan. Refusing to panic until they have reason to, Sarah and Edward Sr. embark on a search for Willie. Edward Sr. drives his car along Willie's route, keeping his eyes peeled for any trace of his missing son. And then he sees something that makes a shiver run down his spine. Eerily abandoned in the empty parking lot outside of an A&H convenience store is a Win dixie van. The driver's door swings ajar in the cold morning wind. An empty can rattles on the floor. Discarded crumbs of food are littered throughout the front seats, and Willie's wallet and logbook rest by the driver's seat. His father doesn't need to look twice. It's clear that something terrible has happened, and he quickly draws the heartbreaking conclusion that his son may have been murdered. You tell yourself it's only a movie. None of this could ever happen to you. You feel relieved until you discover what you're watching is based on actual events. Hi, listeners. It's Vanessa and Greg from the Spotify original from ParCast, Serial Killers. In our Halloween special, Real Horror, we're spotlighting three of the most iconic horror films of all time and telling the terrifying true stories that inspired them. Recovering the real influences behind characters like Ghostface from the 90s mega-hit Scream. Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill from the Oscar-winning thriller The Silence of the Lambs and Leatherface from the 70s cult classic The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Enjoy Real Horror, the serial killer's three-part Halloween special. Listen to all three episodes the final week of October, free and only on Spotify. Edward Sr. and Sarah waste no time in alerting the police. They tell detectives everything they know, the time Willie left for work, the route he was driving, and the disturbing details found in his discarded van. They're certain that this information will be enough to open an official investigation. But frustratingly, their urgency isn't shared by the police, who simply begin a rushed and half-hearted search. They briefly interview a manager at Winn-Dixie who confirms that the van found by Edward Sr. did belong to Willie. Willie. And when a detective returns from the area without any clues as to his whereabouts, he's declared a missing person. But all police interest, as limited as it is, ends there. They refuse to spend any further time discussing the disappearance of Willie Edwards and cruelly inform a heartbroken Sarah that her husband probably ran out on her. But Sarah and Edwards Sr. refuse to give up hope they contact the FBI with details of Willie's disappearance and beg them for help. However, seeing as Willie's body hasn't yet been recovered, there can be no certainty that a crime even took place. And so the FBI disappoint the grieving family by informing them that they have no jurisdiction to open a case. With two young daughters to clothe and feed and a baby boy on the way, Sarah is left to struggle alone. She receives no comfort from the police or compensation from her late husband's employer. Three more months will pass without another whisper of the Willie Edwards case. Until in early spring, a group of fishermen make a horrifying discovery that transforms Sarah's worst fears into a living nightmare. It's April 23rd, 1957. Two fishermen are spending their day at the Alabama River. It's approximately 10 miles west of the Tyler Goodwin Bridge, where Willie Edwards was forced to jump from three months ago. The river is flowing with its usual ferocity, but as the fishermen creep closer to its depths, they spot a horrifying piece of debris floating along. On top of the water is a partially decomposed human body. It's impossible to tell who it belongs to, the age of the victim or how long it's been in the water for. But one thing stands out to the fisherman. It's the body of a black man. Police from Montgomery suspect it may be the body of Willie Edwards, so they invite Sarah to identify the corpse. She peels back the drenched clothes still clinging to the man's freezing skin. To her horror, she recognizes the jeans he's wearing she confirms that it's the body of her husband. But when coroners examine it, they fail to identify a cause of death due to the extensive decomposition. And so without asking any further questions, police close the disappearance case and leave Sarah to wonder how her husband died. No one will hear any more about Willie Edwards for almost 20 years. But in December of 1975, A young, ambitious lawyer will accidentally stumble upon the cold case and relaunch a thorough investigation into exactly what happened. It's now December 1975. Eighteen years have passed since Willie Edwards went missing. His disappearance and death proved too much for his wife Sarah to bear, and she fled Montgomery with her family in 1961. The move was perhaps an attempt to put the unsolved tragedy behind her. However, Willie's death has not been entirely forgotten by the authorities. Montgomery State Attorney William Baxley is investigating a civil rights case from 1963, wherein several unknown white men planted bombs and blew up the city's black churches. So far, Baxley has struggled to find any suspects. He's trawled through former white supremacist groups and spoken to a few well-known ex-Klansmen, but without any luck. After all, now that the Ku Klux Klan's popularity has plummeted, most individuals are keen to bury their murky pasts. However, Baxley's search provides him with intriguing questions about a totally different case, one which he notices remains unsolved. When he and his two associates Tom Ward and Jack Shows interview a man named Sonny Kyle Livingston, a strange and surprising secret is spilled. Livingston, now 38 years old, furiously explains that there's no way he could have been involved in the bombings of 1963. That's because he abruptly left the Klan after the death of a black man in 1957. Livingston admits that he and three other Klansmen forced a young man to jump from a bridge in Montgomery to his death. After searching through old records to find a case that matches this description, investigators stumble upon the cold case of Willie Edwards. Livingston's unexpected words kickstart Baxley into action. He, Ward, and Shows immediately revisit the 18-year-old investigation and breathe new life into it. With one suspect already pinned down, all they need to do now is locate the other three men from the bridge. Fate is on Baxley's side this time, as city records show that a four-man crew was briefly arrested in 1957 for vicious attacks on black buses and churches. Among these men was Livingston. Is it possible that the three others involved were the same men who sent Willie Edwards to his death? The destructive gang referred to themselves as the Montgomery Wrecking Crew. They were part of the United Clans of America and consisted of four men, Kyle Livingston, Raymond Britt, Jimmy York, and Henry Alexander. Baxley quickly discovers that each man has a chilling history of hate crimes. Livingston is a former Klan leader who bombed numerous Black churches with his friend Raymond Britt, and both repeatedly escaped justice due to a collection of powerful friends in high places. Henry Alexander, meanwhile, gained media attention for throwing burning cigarettes and rocks at integrated buses, and even fired a 38 caliber pistol at a pregnant black woman. Less is known about Jimmy York, although Baxley's team are certain that he too was an avid member of Montgomery's Ku Klux Klan. With the four men's history of racial violence, Baxley suspects they were involved in Willie Edwards' death. It's now January 10th, 1976. In Montgomery, assistant state attorneys Ward and Shows have traveled to the home of Jimmy York, one of the men from the Montgomery wrecking crew. If they can get York to admit to being involved in Willie's death, the case against the four men will be extremely strong and justice might finally be on the horizon. But unfortunately, York is not their best hope. He's now 71 years old and suffering from the damaging effects of a stroke. He warns the police officers that his memory has deteriorated significantly in the past few months and admits he can't remember much about the night of Willie's death in January 1957. However, he can recall a few details. To begin with, he confirms the attorney's suspicions by admitting that he was a Klansman during the 1950s. And on the night of Willie's death, he claims to have been enjoying an evening at the house of his fellow clan member, Henry Alexander. While there, he remembers that, quote, somebody mentioned that they were going to straighten somebody out. While Alexander and two others drove off to take care of this matter, York allegedly stayed behind. He stops talking after giving these short details and assures Ward and shows that it's the full extent of his memory. But when York leaves the room to pour himself a glass of water, his wife confides in the two attorneys. She tells them that she believes Henry Alexander has threatened her husband and forced him to keep quiet. Does he know more than what he's letting on? When York returns, the two men ask him if this is true, but he shakes his head in denial. The man he's most afraid of is actually Kyle Livingston, the individual who admitted to leaving the clan after the death of a black man. York signs his statement on January 11th and hands it over to the assistant state attorneys. But the investigation doesn't end there. And on the 20th of February, 1976, Ward and Shows meet with their next suspect for the Montgomery wrecking crew, Raymond Britt. Seeing as he's just 38 years old and still in good health, They trust that he'll be able to provide a more detailed insight into the case. After just one hour of interrogation, Britt breaks and confesses everything he knows. According to Britt, he joined the Klan in 1955, aged just 16 when York, Livingston, and Henry Alexander were already members. On the night of January 22nd, 1957, he received a telephone call instructing him to meet at Alexander's house. Allegedly, Alexander explained to the three men that their task was to look for a black wind Dixie driver who allegedly offended a white woman. They were going to make him pay. The four men hunted down Willie Edwards, kidnapped him from the safety of his van, subjected him to extreme verbal and physical abuse, before forcing him to jump 50 feet down from the Tyler Goodwin bridge. The men then returned to town, laughing and joking that Willie Edwards had gone for a swim. Raymond Britt signs the affidavit the same day, and subsequently passes two polygraph tests which go some way in confirming his confession. He's then granted full immunity against prosecution in return for this testimony. Two out of the four suspects have given the lawyers some version of the events surrounding Willie's death. And even though she remains adamant that her husband wasn't involved in the murder... Diane Alexander has told Baxley's team that Henry is an ex clansman But Baxley's work cannot stop here. Although he's collected confessions and stories about the night of Willie's death, none of the men have outright admitted to killing him. Baxley needs to take the case to trial in order to prove that they're guilty of murder. It's March 5th, 1976. In a Montgomery courtroom, Livingston, York, and Alexander are undergoing their preliminary hearing. They're being charged with first-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. Using Britt as a witness, Baxley explains to the judge the events from January 22, 1957. He provides the rich history of racist atrocities each man participated in, illustrating them as likely suspects. Baxley also mentions that just one week ago, a grand jury indicted all three men of the murder charges. An indictment like this will almost certainly be enough for the judge to send the case to a murder trial. However, the three suspects, York, Livingston, and Alexander, are pleading innocent to the charges against them. They attempt to retract all previous evidence they gave, and Livingston and York are adamant they never even spoke with lawyers these actions begin to undermine Baxley's case. The door is open to the cynical possibility that Britt's story, and thereby Baxley's entire case, is fictional. Perhaps Britt invented his confession in order to deflect blame and win complete immunity from prosecution. This is certainly possible according to the judge. 83-year-old Judge Frank Embry rejects the case and throws it out of his court. He cites an unexpected technicality for this decision, stating that he cannot put the men on trial for murder as there's no definitive cause of death. But Baxley doesn't want to give in and immediately appeals the court's decision, only for it to be thrown out yet again just weeks later. This time, Judge Embry makes another strange and controversial claim to support his rejection. He rules... Merely forcing a person to jump from a bridge does not naturally and probably lead to the death of such a person. From here on, the case of Willie Edwards continues to fall rapidly apart. Britt changes his previous confession and claims that Livingston wasn't at the Tyler Goodwin Bridge with the other men. He then fails a polygraph test about his original testimony and his reliability as a witness is destroyed. Then, Diane Alexander refuses to give any further evidence or insight into her husband's life as a Klansman. She fiercely defends his innocence and Willie's death. And the blows keep on coming. The FBI are next to approach Baxley, and they beg the state attorney to leave Alexander alone. They plead with him to go easy on the suspect. Although Baxley's certain of the men's guilt, he knows when to admit defeat. He reluctantly complies with the wishes of the FBI and lets the case grow cold once again. The death of Willie Edwards will remain a mystery for another 16 years. It will take a surprising deathbed confession from Henry Alexander to finally reveal the haunting events surrounding his murder. It's November 27, 1992, and in Montgomery, Diane Alexander is quietly working in her beauty shop. Her store is empty this morning following the Thanksgiving holiday, so she's startled when she hears the door swing open. Looking up, Diane sees her husband, Henry Alexander, limping slowly towards her. Henry Alexander is unwell. He's now 63 and suffering from terminal lung cancer. His body is crippled by pain, and they both anticipate that the end will come soon. Alexander surveys the empty shop carefully, as if checking that the two are completely alone. Satisfied, he sits down and addresses Diane. Mama, I need to talk to you. He begins, affectionately addressing her by her nickname. I don't know what God has planned for me. I don't even know how to pray for myself. I got things bothering me. Diane's startled. She was expecting her husband to start an argument as usual, and certainly wasn't anticipating these emotional words. What things are bothering you? She asks calmly. Alexander shifts uncomfortably where he stands. Well, Willie Edwards. Henry Alexander then plunges headfirst into his version of the events surrounding Willie Edwards' death. On the night of January the 22nd, 1957, Alexander caught wind of a rumor that angered him. A black man had somehow offended a white woman. Speculations were cast that the man was a delivery driver for Win Dixie and had approached the woman somewhere on his route between Sylacauga and Montgomery. It isn't known what this man allegedly did to the woman. He may have simply said hello or asked her for directions. This was the only information Alexander had, but it was all he needed. That night, he telephoned three of his friends from the Montgomery clan, Livingston, York, and Britt, and drove them along the very same route where he'd heard the incident had occurred. Little did Alexander know that the driver who usually drove that route was sick that night and Willie Edwards had taken his shift. Willie had never before driven through Sylacauga, but the one time that he did would be his last. As soon as Alexander caught sight of Willie's stationary winn van, he told his men to seize its driver. Despite Willie's desperate pleas to spare his life, Alexander commanded them to continue with their plan. Heaving their firearms, the four clansmen dragged Willie onto the Tyler-Goodwin bridge and presented him with two chilling options. He could either run or he could jump. I didn't think he would jump, Alexander admits to Diane. If he'd have run, they would never have shot him. Alexander shamefully adds that it was he who catalyzed the death of Willie Edwards. That man never hurt anybody. I was just running my mouth. I caused it. The confession of Henry Alexander leaves Diane shell-shocked. She was aware of his clan membership, but never suspected him of being involved in Willie's death. Diane is perhaps overcome with fury and shame, too disgusted to look at her husband. Fixing her eyes firmly on the ground, she asks him how he's been able to live with this horrific guilt. Alexander replies that there has not been a day in his life where he hasn't thought about Willie Edwards. His horrifying actions have haunted him for 35 years, and he's tried almost everything to cleanse himself. He got baptized, joined a Bible study group, spent sleepless nights in tears praying for Willie Edwards, and one time he even came close to confessing to a priest. But getting cold feet when the confession was on the tip of his tongue, he backed out and simply shrugged that he'd Done nothing real bad. On December 24th, 1992, shortly after confessing to the murder, Henry Alexander dies. But his shameful secret continues to consume Diane. She's mortified by his crime and heartbroken for the family of Willie Edwards. For reasons unknown, Diane chooses not to inform the police or lawyers about her husband's confession. Instead, she reaches out to Willie Edwards' widow and children to explain Henry Alexander's disturbing secret. Still suffering from decades worth of painful grief, the family of Willie Edwards take action immediately. It's May 22nd, 1997. Melinda Edwards, one of Willie Edwards' daughters, has recently been contacted by Diane Alexander. Diane shared the details of her husband's confession and offered to meet with the family. But although Melinda graciously accepts Diane's heartfelt apology, she wants more. She craves to see justice served for her beloved father. That's why today she reaches out to district attorney Ellen Brooks and asks her to look into her father's death. Fortunately, Brooks is sympathetic to Melinda's pleas and agrees to take a look into the old investigation. Her first priority is to ensure it cannot be thrown out of court again, as it was by Judge Embry in 1976 when he claimed there was no cause of death. So Brooks sets about establishing exactly what killed Willie. She gains permission to exhume his body and hires a medical examiner to perform a post-mortem analysis. Perhaps unsurprisingly, considering he was found in the Alabama River, they rule that Willie died by drowning. But something is different this time perhaps due to the evidence presented by State Attorney Baxley all those years ago, or maybe because of the marks of impact on Willie's body from hitting the water, the medical officer announces that the manner of Willie's death was homicide. Willie Edwards's case is now a murder investigation. In an attempt to right their past wrongs, the Department of Justice recently pledged to reassess all cold cases from the civil rights era, Brooks is optimistic that this will give her the chance to take the case to a courtroom trial. But it won't be easy. Jimmy York died in 1979, Henry Alexander in 1992, and Raymond Britt in 2002, shortly after retracting all of his previous testimony. The only remaining witnesses are Livingston, who refuses to return to Montgomery, and Diane Alexander, who pleads the Fifth in a bid to avoid legally incriminating her late husband. It will be an uphill struggle to their long-awaited victory. In 1999, two years after reopening the murder investigation, Brooks is ready to bring Willie Edwards' case to court. In front of a grand jury in Montgomery, she and her team present 36 exhibits and seven new pieces of testimony. They analyze and review an impressive wealth of records, summaries from the Alabama Attorney General's Office, the U.S. Attorney's Office, the state's Department of History and Archives, as well as the updated autopsy report. And this time, over 40 years since the murder, and more than 20 years after Judge Embry threw their case out from his court, justice is granted to the family of Willie Edwards. The grand jury find that Willie was murdered by members or associates of the Ku Klux Klan. It's the first time that the Klan has been directly held responsible for his death. However, the victory isn't as sweet as it should be. The jury claim that they cannot find enough evidence to convict a specific person or persons of the crime. Despite the acknowledgement that Klan members were responsible, no individuals are found to be guilty. Livingston, York, and Alexander escape justice yet again. It's an exasperating conclusion to the trial. Sadly, any hopes of achieving further justice for Willie Edwards are dashed in 2013. In a letter written to the Chief Criminal Section on July the 9th, the state of Alabama formally requests for the case to be closed once and for all. Acknowledging that the statute of limitations has now expired and most of the witnesses and suspects are dead, the state believes there is nothing more to gain from further investigation. Frustratingly, the chief criminal section agrees. The murder investigation for Willie Edwards is officially closed. However, his legacy still lives on. In Willie Edwards' hometown of Montgomery, he has been immortalized. His name is engraved on a memorial at the Peace and Justice Center, alongside 4,000 other victims who died by lynching or racial violence between 1850 and 1960. the Southern Poverty Law Center have published a book titled Free at Last, which tells Willie's tragic story for everyone to read. Thanks to the family and friends of Willie Edwards, his name and story will never be forgotten. Next week on Deathbed Confessions, we meet Alan Nunn May a British scientist turned Russian spy. During World War II, Britain and America worked on a top-secret project to create the atom bomb. Only a handful of scientists and government officials knew of the plans to build the bomb. Alan May was one of them. But May's loyalty could not be trusted, and he began leaking highly classified information to the Russians all throughout the war. Information which had disastrous consequences for Britain, America, and the rest of the world. Now, 60 years after his betrayal and on his deathbed, will Nun may finally explain how and why he became a Russian spy? Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast Produced in partnership with Noiser Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes Developed by Julian Poirot for Parcast Series produced by Addison Mugent Associate producer, Nicole Edmonds Written by Nicole Edmonds Supervising editor, Jane O Sound design by Matias Torresolé. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer Mix master by Cody Reynolds-Shaw Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley